The Bible is God's self-disclosure. The Bible alone is the Word of God. These are profound concepts, things that we really should understand. And one of the ways to help us in that is to know the difference between, say in literature, a biography and an autobiography. A biography, very, very useful, written by someone other than the person they're writing about. For instance, you can read a book about Winston Churchill or Charles Spurgeon or George Whitfield or Abraham Lincoln. Uh, you can read about these people and learn of them from someone who has hopefully done a whole lot of research. Perhaps years, even decades of research has gone into some of the biographies that we can enjoy and read and learn of the person that is being uh, talked about, written about. The difference comes with an autobiography because it's the author who's writing about himself. Hopefully not because he's puffed up and just full of himself. No, he just wants to tell his story in his own words. He wants to bring his perspective on his life, perhaps a season of his life or his entire life. And these can be very, very helpful because you understand then why someone did what they did in life by means of the words that they write about themselves. I was thinking this, these were my feelings as this happened and this was the choice I made and here's why I made that choice. A biography can't really do that unless they've got first-hand testimony of the person and, and perhaps it's a letter whereby the person reveals why they did certain things. But a biography is very, very different from an autobiography. And in the Bible, we have God's own word about everything, including himself. And that's why the Bible is this unique book in all the world. Only the Bible is the Word of God. Only the Bible has weightiness, gravitas is the old word, to be able to bind the conscience. Uh, Luther at the Diet of Worms in Germany coined that wonderful phrase, unless I'm convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I will not recant, he said, for my conscience is held captive by the word of God. You can't say that about a biography, even about God, but you can about the word of God because it's God's own word. It's inspired, though human authors wrote what they wanted to write, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. Second Peter chapter 1, they were moved, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Context is a huge issue when it comes to right interpretation of the Bible. It's been well said, a text out of context becomes a pretext. It becomes something that was never intended. I remember being in uh, England, growing up as a teenager, very much into sports, soccer, football as it's called there, was my thing. And I was about to go and play at Liverpool, my beloved team. 
uh, at their ground in front of about 17,000 people at the time for a special event. And I was going to take penalty kicks. If you know the game of soccer, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, the Sunday before this event, I was at church and the pastor said, remember Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he thinks and says to me, I think you're going to win. And he wanted me to apply that verse to my life so that I would win. Now, at the time, it was an encouragement, a big encouragement, but I believe it was completely wrong to use that verse in that setting because Philippians 4.13 is not a verse for athletes so that they can win races or win penalty kick competitions. I did well. I didn't win the competition, though. I got two out of three against uh, Liverpool's second keeper, who became a very much a, a star keeper. Bruce Grobelaar was his name. So that didn't work. And then when you think about it, if there are two Christians in a race, a 100 meters race, what do you do if they're both claiming Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, <laughs> um, don't know what to do with that. Well, Philippians 4.13 is not a verse about winning in life, beating the competition. In context, Paul was writing about the fact that he could go through anything life ever threw at him, whether he was in a state of abounding, which was doing well, or suffering lack, which was certainly the opposite of that. He could go through it all because of Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jeremiah 29, 11 is another verse often taken out of context. And when we take something out of its context, we are so likely to misinterpret the text. And Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I have plans for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not for disaster. I have good plans for you. Well, that's not the message we bring to the world. Uh, that was in its setting a word given to a people who were about to be banished from their land. And the message was, though that is taking place, my plans for you are good, and there's going to be a number of you returning. It took place decades later. But that is the context for the verse. And again, you can't stand before anyone and say, God's plans for you are good. You can't really do that. Uh, imagine this scenario if you're given, as Ray Comfort has brought out so, so well, you're given the opportunity, the challenge of preaching to people on 9-10 rather than 9-11, the day before the towers are coming down, and you're speaking to a group who are coming back the next day and will die, and you're given this assignment somehow supernaturally, perhaps an angel is revealed to you, I don't know, you know that all the people you're going to be speaking to will be dead 24 hours from now. Imagine that as an assignment. It's an imaginary assignment, of course, but let's go in our imaginations. If you have a group in pe of people in front of you, you know they have 24 hours to live. You can't say God has a great purpose for your life. 
put these five points into fruition in your life and you're going to do well in your business and uh, it will shape you and you'll see the hand of God extended in your business if you do these things. No, there's got to be an urgency. In fact, if you're preparing a message and it wouldn't apply to people who are going to be dead within 24 hours, do you know you haven't got the gospel? The gospel is an urgent message. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. And the point Ray Comfort made, which is so, so helpful with that illustration is, if you've got to change your message, preacher, when you know people are going to be dead within 24 hours, what you would have said wasn't the gospel. The gospel is about reconciliation and the urgency of that. I remember being in a service where a six-week focus was going to be on Jesus, and I came to the first week, and there was no urgency. It was, well, you've heard what I have to say about Jesus, and next week we'll talk more about this, so come back. Amen. And then he said a prayer. I'm thinking, you don't know that the people in front of you will be back next week because they might die in the next week. We have not even got the promise of the night, let alone the next day, that we'll live through the day. We don't know if this is our last hour. Now, of course, in all likelihood, we'll be here next week, but we've got no guarantees. If the Lord wills, we'll be back next week. And so there's this urgency. So texts out of context become pretext for something that was never intended by the author. So what God has given to us, and I say this often, and it's well worth repeating, God gave us books. He inspired authors to write books. 66 books are inspired 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. Total the tally up and you have 66 books. And God gave us books rather than a string of verses. Having chapter and verse divisions is a man-made thing. I think a good thing, but also there's some drawbacks with that. There are pros and there are cons when it comes to chapter and verse divisions. Uh, until only the last four or five hundred years, we didn't have verse or chapter divisions. And they're man-made. And always keep that in mind. Regarding context, chapter divisions and verse divisions are not helpful because we focus on verse 15 and don't always remember what verse 13 and 14 had said or what comes immediately afterwards. But with a Bible without chapter and verse divisions, you simply read. In fact, uh, one of the things I do is regularly read through uh, a book of the Bible in what is called the Reader's Bible. And all it is, is the Bible without uh, verse divisions. You don't see numbers. You just read it like it was intended as a book. Now, where chapter and verse divisions are helpful is it helps us and the congregation find a particular verse very, very quickly. If I were to say, find the passage that speaks of the suffering servant of, of Yahweh. Um, 
Well, we would go to Isaiah, but which part? Well, if you've only got the book without chapter divisions, it's going to be a long time before the congregation finds that place. People are, are at various different levels of maturity and certainly various different levels of knowledge. And you'll be reading a lot of Isaiah before you came across that particular passage. We know it as Isaiah 53. How wonderful it is to be able to say, all right, we're in the book of Hebrews. Let's go back to Isaiah 53. And within a few short seconds, people can find the place. So it's very, very helpful. But as I say, there are drawbacks. I'd like to focus in on the idea of uh, books, books of the Bible, and I want us to go to the book of Colossians and get the broad picture, the big picture. So important that we do get the big picture, remembering that God gave us books. Now, by all means, study verses, study words. I believe every word of the Bible is inspired by God, breathed out by God. In fact, the Bible itself says that. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, of course. All scripture is theonoustos, God-breathed, breathed out by God, all of it. Every part of it, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible, when you find God's word, when you have the Bible, all scripture is not merely the opinions of man, it's breathed out by God. Men wrote carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when it comes to something like the, a book of the Bible, we're talking now about Colossians, one of the things that's very, very helpful is to read through the book, that's obvious, but also to read with a good study Bible. I've changed my mind on this over the years. I have a Bible that uh, I use a lot that has no notes. It does have verse divisions, but no notes at all. And that's helpful just to read the Bible because when you have a study Bible, you are inclined to allow the study notes to impact you uh, regarding the meaning. And that's the point. Study Bibles are good if the notes are good, if the notes are helpful, and if the notes are accurate. But there are some study Bibles out there I couldn't recommend because the author of the study notes, not the author of the scripture, of course, but the study notes has an agenda. They perhaps have a wild prophetic agenda and you read the notes and you think, well, I'm not sure I can see that in the text. And the reason is it wasn't in the text. And there are some wild, wild study Bibles out there, but there are some very, very good ones. One of the things that was helpful to me in this was uh, a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, uh, Linda, my wife, had led someone to the Lord or not sure if they became a genuine Christian, but we wanted to get a Bible to them. And we thought, what would we put in their hands? They don't know anything. They've not the foggiest idea of who Moses is or 
who Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are. They, they don't know a thing. They're foreign to the Bible. What can we put in their hands? And we thought, and I thought, and I thought, you know, a good study Bible can be very, very helpful, especially when you know they're not going to be steered f- too far off, off track. And I've come to believe that there are, in terms of study Bible, some very helpful tools out there for the new Christian and for the established Christian. We're going to talk about that. Study Bibles. Uh, There are people that say, I don't want to read the words of men. I understand, but they can be very, very helpful, especially for, for, for background, background information. Regarding the book of Colossians, if you've got a Bible in front of you, I would just recommend, if you can possibly afford it, invest in your spiritual life by getting a good study Bible. I'm sure you have a Bible as a Christian. Invest in a good study Bible. Or what would be my top one to recommend? Well, I've had to think about it. And what we did for this young Christian or almost Christian, we're not sure, was get them a Reformation study Bible in the ESV. ESV has so many good resources. It's a wonderful translation of the Bible, highly accurate, very readable. It's the uh, version I use in my preaching. And then the Reformation Study Bible uh, is produced by Ligonier Ministries. And again, uh, there are so many resources in, in, in that book. It's a, it's a big, thick thing, uh, but it's so helpful for the young Christian giving them background, giving them uh, answers to perhaps some of the big questions they read as they read a particular chapter. Uh, Or what's going on in verse 16 there? Well, there's a note about verse 16 and an explanation. And again, I do trust the study notes. They are never to be thought of as inspired, but they can be immensely helpful. Colossians. Well, what do we know about the book of Colossians. It's written by Paul, written from prison. Uh, The tradition is that he wrote this while under house arrest in Rome around the year 61 AD. It's interesting too, there are three types of letter that Paul wrote. There were uh, a personal letter, personal letters uh, to an individual An example of that would be Philemon. So Paul is writing to one person. So it's personal to an individual. The second type is an occasional letter uh, in a local setting. And that would be what we have here with Colossians. He's writing to a church, a specific church in a local setting. Then there are what we would call general epistles, general letters. These would be circular in the sense of they would be sent around various churches. I believe Ephesians is exactly that. There's not so much a a, a description of the people in the church as you would find, say, at the end of Romans, where in Romans 16 there's a long list of people that Paul was addressing by name. Not so much 
in Ephesians. It was a circular letter and many believe it went around uh, a, a circuit and various churches would be the recipients of this letter. Uh, certainly Ephesus was one and perhaps the main one, generally speaking. In fact, there are Greek manuscripts that do not contain the word Ephesus at the beginning, which again is interesting. It could have been a circular letter and um, when it was going to the Ephesian letter, perhaps someone wrote in the word Ephesus uh, because that's where it was going. But this is kind of speculation. We call it Ephesians, and rightly so, rightly so. But it could also have been a circular letter. If you read uh, background information, you'll, you'll find that this is brought out. Uh, what's interesting, too, is when we see the book of Colossians, there was a mailman. His name was Tychicus. Colossians chapter 4, verse 7 mentions him. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Putting things together, it was Tychicus who would be the mailman delivering this letter. And as he came to Colossae, the city of Colossae, uh, before he left, he'd probably stay there a little while, he could then say, now, here's what's happening with Paul. And Paul mentions that in the letter. These little things are helps to understand the timing of the letter, uh, where it was written from. Here's what we need to do. We need to know the history behind the books of the Bible to understand what was being communicated in that context. Through history, we find out what was taking place in the past, of course. Then secondarily, we are to apply the principle of what we learn when we do that and therefore show its relevance to our situation today. Some people say you have to make the Bible relevant to today. I, I disagree with that. The Bible doesn't have to be made relevant it is relevant. So the preacher and the teacher is required to show its relevance. This is what it said. Uh, this is what it means. Here's how this applies to us in our day. The city of Colossae was built in a beautiful valley with hills all around. Uh, it was a very cosmopolitan city, very international feel to it. People were coming from all sorts of backgrounds. Many types of religions were, were there in the city. It was therefore a lot like our own society in the Western world, a pluralistic society. Do you know that word? You hear the word plural, more than one. Uh, singular is one thing. You have one of something. But a plurality means you have more than one. If you have a plurality of eldership, you have more than one uh, person who's an elder in a church. And a pluralistic society is a society with different religions and cultures represented on each street. That's not unlike our own situation today. Now, in contrast, Ephesus was dominated by only one main religion. You'll remember that. Uh, 
Diana, greatest Diana of the Ephesians. She was worshipped as a god. Ephesus was dominated by that one main religion before Paul came and brought his outreach, gospel outreach. Uh, it was in uh, Ephesus there that Diana was worshipped and there was a great stirring up of the people against Paul because what Paul was doing was stopping the trade of Diana gods. There we go. Now, inside Colossae, you could find animism. What's that? That's the worship of animals, the worship of nature. Certainly, you could find astrology. Greek and Roman gods were worshipped. We also have something that Paul addresses, not by name, but certainly in this epistle, it's attacked something called Gnosticism, actually an early form of it. We would call it proto-Gnosticism. Gnosticism would develop into its big monster beast type thing that it became later on in history, but there was certainly an early form of it. It's really a religion of mystery, a mystery religion. Uh, The word Gnostic is spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C. It's a silent G. We say Gnostic, but it's spelled with a G. G G-N-O-S-T-I-C. And it's from the Greek word genosis, meaning to know. And so the idea is we are in the know. We've got mysteries revealed to us, secret mysteries. Always beware of anyone who tells you they have the hallmark of truth. They themselves, they're pointing to themselves. I got information. I've got information you won't get anywhere else. Beware of that. Uh, The Gnostics claimed inside secret knowledge, knowledge that was not available outside their group. These people claimed inside revelation that only the elites, the initiated, could know. Does that ring any bells? There are groups like that everywhere in our world, in Western society. Join us. We've got the handle on the truth. Uh, Certainly Gnosticism, or an early form of it, was in view. Judaism. Now, Unlike the Judaism of Israel, the Judaism in Colossae was far less moral, much more mystical. You you can understand that as you read Colossians. That's what Paul's dealing with. And of course, inside Colossae, you now have Christianity. You have the church. You have a letter going to the church that actually finds recipients. The church at Colossae, got hold of the message as Paul wrote it and Tychicus delivered it. So, animism, astrology, Greek and Roman gods, proto-Gnosticism, Judaism, Christianity, all of that on a mixed basis was there found in the city streets and in the homes of Colossae. What's the message? Read through Colossians and you'll see the message is Christ. Christ. See, Christ 
present now in the life of the Christians in the city, it wasn't Paul who founded the church, but as we piece together the information we have in our Bibles, Epaphras seems to be the founder of the church. Epaphras. We read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 7, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. What we actually believe is that Epaphras was with Paul when Paul was writing this letter and I'm sure had given an update as to what was happening in Colossae. Uh, wonderful stuff when you understand some of this background. Epaphras was actually saved, converted to Christ in Paul's outreach to Ephesus and then went back to his hometown of Colossae and started the church. And Paul had never visited Colossae. Now, what was the background? The Colossian church had embraced error. The exact nature of that error uh, has baffled scholars uh, simply because Paul's writing is not really addressing something by name, but he combats many different false teachings that cannot be made to fit into just one group. That's why he didn't just go after one group that was having influence in the church. But he was going after a mixture of all the false doctrine in the city. How do we do it? How did he, how did he do it? He did it by proclaiming Christ. If we understand Christ, who he is, truly God, truly man, the light of that dispels the darkness of falsehood. Falsehood is dark. Error is dark. Heresy, which is beyond error. All of us have certain errors. We don't know exactly what our errors are, which is why we continue to study and pray and ask the Lord to help us understand the Scripture. But uh, over time, we get rid of a lot of our errors by being taught the Word of God. Heresies on a different scale. It's error with steroids, so to speak. It takes you outside the Christian faith. Heresy damns the soul. The Bible speaks about damnable heresies. You've got to believe the right thing about the big things. You've got to be right about who God is. You may not know everything about him, but you've got to believe what he's revealed himself as Trinity, that Jesus is not half God, half man, but Truly God, truly man. He's God and man. He has two natures, even though he's one person. The Trinity says there's one God, three persons. Right view of Christ, what we call Christology, says there's one person with two natures. He's truly God, truly man. So there was a mixture going on in the the message was, here's Christ, here's who he really is, understand this and you'll be in the truth and error will be far from you. That's so relevant to our own day. We don't get rid of darkness by trying to vacuum out the darkness. 
but by turning the light on, and the light is Christ. There's a mirror now to our own day, when we've said all this, in something called the New Age Movement. It's got no official headquarters. There are many false doctrines associated with it, but you can't grow up in a Western society without being influenced by the New Age Movement. You may not even have heard those words, the New Age, but you've heard uh, and you've been affected by the doctrines of the New Age. There's a, there's a whole mixture when it comes to the, the New Age. It's like a, a snowball that gathers up all sorts of debris along the way. Think about that. Uh, there's extreme vegetarianism. There's angelic spirit guides, yoga. Yeah, that's New Age. Acupuncture, reflexology, feminism. Uh, handwriting analysis, reincarnation, ever heard of that? It's a lie as old as the Garden of Eden. You shall be as gods. Uh, There's so much we could say about that, but I want to focus on Christ. But in focusing on Christ, you realize there's something else in the land, there's something else in the city and it's the false doctrines of New Age in our time. There, it was the amalgamation of the things I've already talked about. In the professing church, there's something called the ecumenical movement. I call them ecumaniacs. (laughs) They're calling for all religions to come together. It's not unusual to see this Pope and previous Popes have united prayer meetings asking leaders from all religions to come and each pray to his God. That's not unusual. That's not simply true in the Roman Catholic religion. Uh, It's true of the Church of England, former Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of that, uh, has asked uh, many to acknowledge, certainly in times past this was the case, Acknowledge the Holy Spirit in every religion. And it's popular to state that there's many ways to God. All of this totally violates what Jesus said. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John chapter 14, verse 6. You see, What do people say when you read those clear words of Jesus? Well, it's not simply Jesus. It's the message of Paul. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, Paul wrote. Uh, Peter preached in Acts 4, There is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What do people do with that? Well, they say, well, Christians said he was the only way. Well, no, 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 no. Christ said he was the only way, and Christians believe Christ. And it's not because of arrogance, because they think, I have my opinion, and it's much better than anyone else's. No. We have our opinion because of our high view of Christ, and we submit to him. And he said he's the only way. There's a big difference. It's not pride. It's actually humility to say we recognize in Jesus the truth 
And he's the one who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, before Abraham was, I am. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, the way. You see, in a pluralistic society, what we have, in America at least, is the legal right to be theologically wrong. You can believe anything you like and not suffer persecution, by the government at least. Well, that's the theory. <laughs> and you can express that religion without going to jail, without going to prison. It's politically correct to apply the concept of truth to every area except religion. You see, in math, 2 plus 2 equals 4. And if we come up with any other answer other than 4, we're wrong. But in religion, 2 plus 2 can equal anything you like, as long as you believe it sincerely. <laughs> 2 plus 2 is 82, if you believe it. If you really believe it. See, all religions are not the same. They're not all saying the same thing. For example, Islam thunders out a proclamation each day from every mosque, God has no son. No S-O-N. Christianity proclaims Jesus is the son of God. At a basic level, those are the two religions. And those statements are in total opposition to one another. They cannot both be true. Now, logically, they may both be wrong, <laughs> but it's far more likely that one is right and one is wrong, but they can't both be right. Anyway, back to the book of Colossians. What we have here, as we read, is the first couple of chapters are doctrinal explaining the uniqueness of Christ. You know the word unique. We should never say something is very unique. It's either unique or it's not. Think about that. Unique means one of a kind. And so you don't really need to say, and it would be kind of invalid to say something is very one of a kind. No, it's either one of a kind or it's not. And unique means one of a kind. And Jesus is unique. There's no one like him. If we read through the book of Hebrews, we'll see the uniqueness of Christ. Same in so many parts of our Bibles. I'm trying to think what, what Bible book in the New Testament doesn't proclaim Christ, Christ that way. Well, maybe Philemon, but basically you're going to see the uniqueness of Christ in every New Testament book, he's unique. There's only one of him, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And chapters 1 and 2 of Colossians is really doctrinal. Chapters 3 and 4, there's only four chapters in Colossians, is very practical. Here's now the outworking. And the message is walk Walk worthy of the call. 
Um, this era in Colossae, let, let's camp out on that just for a moment. The Gnostics, the proto-Gnostics, as we might call them, claim special revelation. It's interesting, there was something of a chart regarding the gods. And those who were in the know, the Gnostics, claimed they had revelation regarding the names on the chart. And Jesus was somewhere there. And he's okay if you want to stay settled at a low level of elitism spiritually. Yeah, we can see him down there somewhere in the chart, but follow us and we'll take you to a more advanced level. There's Jesus, but there's someone above him. And there's someone above him. And if you come to our meeting next Tuesday, we're going to tell you about someone five stages up from Jesus. Do you see the appeal of that? Do you hear the lure, L-U-R-E, of the devil in that? Yeah, it's, it's good if, if that's the level you are, you're on. That was their evangelism strategy against Christians. Yeah, you've got Jesus, but follow us. You'll be in the know. You'll know someone bigger. You'll, we'll give you the name bigger and better than Jesus. These entities were called aeons, and their chart was known as the Pleroma. The Pleroma. And as revelation, so-called, came to the people in this group, the Gnostics, the proto-Gnostics, a new name was added to the chart. Think about that. And so two months from now, there's someone, hey, you know we told you that Tuesday about the name of this eon above Jesus, five stages on? Well, I got the sixth. There's a stage above him. There's an eon, an entity above him. And all that was logged on the chart. What was the chart called? The Pleroma. I want to finish our time together by going to Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, who's the him? Christ. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him, who's the head of all rule and authority. Why did I tell you about the chart that existed in Colossae and other places in that ancient world? Well, we named the chart. We told you the name of the chart was the Pleroma. That's the exact word that the Holy Spirit 
inspired Paul to write. Where? Colossians 2.9. Look at it in your Bible. For in him, that's Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It speaks of the incarnation, doesn't it? God became a man. But the word fullness is the Greek word pleroma. <laughs> Here's where I want us to, to see before I close. Here's what I want us to see. If you've got Christ, you've got the entire chart. <laughs> That's all you need to know. His name is higher than any other. What a message. Without striking the Gnostics by name, by writing, in Christ you have the fullness, the pleroma of deity dwelling bodily, he ripped up their chart, the false chart of the proto-Gnostics. You got Christ, you got everything. He's the God-man. Praise the Lord. Now you understand this. The book of Colossians comes alive. And I just want to encourage you to read through the book of Colossians. It's the inspired word of God. And with this background, you're going to see Christ in full technicolor. And in seeing him, you've found all that you need. He's not only necessary, he's sufficient. He's the all-sufficient one. And if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated where? At the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Those are the opening words of Colossians chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time together. Pray it will just cause us to run after Christ and in finding him and learning of him, we'll know the truth about him and be enveloped in that truth. And the wonderful thing is we don't lose any of this at death. We'll see him as he really is. Why? Because the Bible is God's self-disclosure. This is the truth according to him, the God who is truth himself. And everything we learn here that is true will be true there forever. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.